From Orange County, California, you are listening to Taking Flight with Captain Michael Rocket Blackstone. That almost sounds like a fake name. Maybe Marvel's next superhero? Might want to check into that. This is a different type of aviation podcast that is not hosted by a tech geek know-it-all or communist sympathizing wacko, no. Lucky for you, I am your host. With over 30 years and 30,000 hours of flying high-performance aircraft all over the world, 21 years at a major airline, and with over 25 years in the extremely challenging flying business, I hope to become your personal coach to get you started in your career in aviation as a pilot and to help you identify and survive this industry's many pitfalls and booby traps along the way. This podcast is my personal commitment to helping you succeed in making your dreams of flying for a living or as a hobby come true. We're trying to avoid that happening to your career because that's got to hurt. Well, welcome back. You are listening to Taking Flight with Michael Rocket Blackstone. We are on episode 13 today. And uh, just to recap, episode 12, we talked about my first solo in the Marchetti SF260 at age 17 with my dad, which was pretty cool. So if you haven't heard that, you may want to step back to episode 12. But today's episode, we're going to do some firsts with the airline business. Um, I'm going to limit it to just the the major airline business. When I got hired at American Airlines in March of 1999, uh, I was assigned to the Boeing 727 as a flight engineer. I was 25 years old, just turned 26, uh, the youngest guy in the class. So I got my last choice. I was one of the guys to get whatever was left. So um, the older guys get to have the the, the pick of the of the aircraft types and usually what was left at that time was the Boeing 727. Now that aircraft was the badge of honor at that time. When you got to get to the 727 panel, you would get to go through probably the hardest school at American Airlines of learning how to uh, work the panel, balance the fuel, put the generators online, which everybody screwed up. And the first thing everybody tells you is check essential. You probably screwed up the the generators on the Boeing 727. I only flew that aircraft as an engineer. I'm looking back at my logbook. So this has been kind of fun for me this evening, looking at the logbooks to see when I started on these aircraft. And my first flight with American Airlines was June 8th, 1999, flying from Miami to uh, SAL, I think it's San Salvador, uh, back to Miami and then Miami Kingston and LA over there. So I, I had a great time as a, as a flight engineer. I, I think anybody who gets a chance to do that, it's a great way to, or who has had a chance to do that. There are no more 727s in operation at the airlines anymore. And I don't believe there's any three pilot positions at any airline uh, in the United States anyway, flying uh, the three-man crews which is such a shame because not only job security for pilots, it's nice to have a third set of eyes up there, another 
qualified airmen looking over the shoulder of the other two guys and just kind of helping them out with the performance calculations and just watching things and, and helping them. And it's it was really nice not only to pass up the food and give everybody a break, which we certainly appreciate in today's world, um, having someone up there to help us all the time, but uh, it was just a great place to cut our teeth in the airline business to learn how to do the radio calls, call the in-range, let people know we're coming, set up the catering and, and the fuel or whatever. Just It was just really nice. I only flew as an engineer for a few months. So I got hired in March, did my school in, in April, got online in June, and then I was off of that aircraft it says 727 last flight. I'm looking at my logbook here. It says July 24th, 1999, and uh, was assigned going to the 767-757 fleet. I don't. I remember that I, I told you about this earlier on, but I ended up going to the 7576 fleet at American, which is where my dad was as well. So at that time, my dad was flying 767-757 fleet out of Los Angeles as a senior captain for American flying the transcon flights. He'd fly the morning departure out of LA, one of the low numbers, two, three, four, uh, American heavy uh, flight two from LA to New York, and then come back the next day after a 12 or 24 hour layer in New York City, downtown or close to the airport. If, the, if it was a short layover at the, uh, I believe it's the, the uh, Crown Plaza up there. And then back the next day, super efficient, 11 or 12 hour trip. And my dad flew that. So when I had the opportunity to, to, things were moving very fast in 1999, when I had the opportunity to switch to the 7576 fleet, which I had my, my request, my bid preference in is what they call it, I was assigned the 7576 in probably August uh, or July, I would say. So August 1, I must have started my class, and by, by September 1, I was done, and then I ended up going with a Czech airman, looks like Philip Clayton, and we flew a 757 from Santa Ana, Orange County, to Chicago, O'Hare, to uh, Newark, New Jersey. That was my first flight. So today's episode is going to be talking about first, first flights, first jet flights. At this point in my career, I had never flown a jet aircraft Um at all. So this was my first time of actually hands-on in a jet was with Philip Clayton after American Airlines 7576 school, which is a five-week school, a tough course. Um, But after the 727 school, it was kind of doable. I had a great time, loved the studying. And by the time I got to March 10th of 1999, flying my first flight with a Czech Airman at American I was pretty excited and I was 26 years old and just couldn't stop smiling. I, ha- I was having a blast flying the 7.5 for the first time. I, I can't uh, possibly tame this down at all, but this is the coolest. This was the coolest jet, I believe, at American Airlines at that time. It was the, the jet to be on. It was the coolest looking. It had the the biggest engines on it. I believe it had... Let me think, uh, like 45,000 pounds of thrust per side, and uh, it weighed about 250,000 pounds. So from an airline's 
perspective, airliner perspective, thrust to weight ratio is everything. So this thing performed like a rocket ship. And being 25 years old and have never flown a, a big jet like this before, pushed the power up on the first takeoff, and it was really cool uh, blasting off down the runway. Now, the simulators that we fly in training are really, really good. They call them level D. They're they're full motion. They've got great graphics at that time. It was it was pretty awesome. They get they've gotten better over the years and the visuals really is where the where the changes occur and it really, really simulates what it's going to be like. So our I don't know if you know this, but our first time flying any of the airliners is with customers in a real jet, you're really going up with the real customers because the simulations are so good and the emergency, it's in the trainings and the procedures, everything we do at the at the airline in the simulator is really, really realistic and, and just as good as learning it in the jet without having to go up and, and tear the jets up with shutting motors down and and do all that, all the, the, the really stuff that's hard on the equipment. So we prep out in the in the five-week school, lots of ground school, tons of ground school, tons of systems, tons of knowledge, tons of procedures, normals, abnormals, which is the emergency stuff, how to fly the airplane with an engine out, how to, how to, how to handle emergencies at the least opportune time. We get to practice that in the simulator. And it's probably about 20, 25 hours in the sim. So when we get to the, to the jet, it's not as if we, we haven't done this before. So things go smoothly. You have great equipment. We have amazing mechanics at the airlines that keep these airplanes in top working order. And then, of course, I had an awesome, uh, awesome instructor. They they call these guys check airmen. They're line the line check airmen. And I had, uh, let's see, my first flight was in was uh, September tenth. Second flight September eleventh. And you fly with these guys for for a full a full sequence. Usually that's about, you know, like an 18 or 20, 25 hour group of days. And you fly until, until you, he feels you look capable and and solid and not needing any more assistance. And he's gone through all of the questions and he's quizzed you in flight and he's asking you, you know, your thought processes on things and just kind of quizzing your overall knowledge and checking your performance to make sure that all of the normal day-to-day stuff that, that we practice very kind of kind of we brush over it in the in the training we focus primarily on the heavy emergency stuff in the sim basic general stuff of course with the normals that comes up throughout the the training as well but now we're going to do normal flights where everything goes normal every time so he's checking to check the flows that you're working with the checklist properly and i'm having a blast i just i just can't believe how much fun i'm having at that time uh, every leg, super exciting, hand flying, enjoying the airplane, learning how to trim it, getting getting everything dialed in. I just love hand flying these airplanes. A lot of people think that when you get into an airliner that the pilot just turns on the autopilot and sits back and that's it. And that is so far from the the reality, from the truth. The airplane has the capability and the 7.5 is included in this. Some, some airplanes didn't have this, like the 7.3 does not have an auto land capability. We'll talk about the 7.3 in a little while. That was my next jet that I got to fly. Uh, but the 7.5 had an auto land capability. It had three autopilots. And when the weather is really rough, the co-pilot monitors all the systems, the captain, 
also is monitoring the systems, but he's the pilot in command. He's flying it. But the autopilots are able to bring an airplane down and put it down on the center line in the touchdown zone, lower the nose. All the captain needs to do at that point is to ensure that the speed brake's deployed, bring the reversers into reverse, and make sure it's tracking the center line. And when he's satisfied, everything is is good and you're approaching taxi speed, squeeze a little more on the brakes, disconnect the autopilot and take over manually and taxi the airplane off the runway. We would only do that in super low visibility situations, which we got on occasion, especially at a place like LAX where it gets coastal fog and fog creeps in off the ocean and LAX goes below VFR uh, pretty quickly. It goes IFR many days, especially in the summer, we get an overcast that creeps in and out off the, the coast. So we get a thousand foot overcast. And when the temperature and the humidity is just right, the temperature and, and dew point spread are are the same, the, the, the fog with just a light little breeze off the ocean, we can get a really thick layer of fog in LAX. And that's when you need your auto land capability. But the rest of the time that we fly these airplanes, myself primarily and, and and many many other pilots especially the guys that really love flying turn the autopilot off all the way or you don't turn it on we just literally leave it off for the takeoff and we engage the, our our lateral navigation so um, at 400 feet you can hit LNAV and the plane will give you lateral guidance so you can follow your flight directors manually but using the flight director to stay on the path we go to progress page two which gives us our lateral navigation uh, deviation. So you can see, is it 0.0? And on the 7576, it would show to the 10th of a mile. And in in the more current and modern airplanes, it shows to the 100th of a mile. You'd see 0.00. And if you get off a 100th of a mile, you'll see it and notice it there. So I like to monitor that page when I'm hand flying. Progress page to LNAV page, nice and tight on the, on the range. And you can fly this airplane extremely accurately, hand flying it, LNAV. And then at 1,000 feet, we hit the VNAV button. And this thing, it, it's, it's, a, it's attempting to fly its vertical navigation as well and the flight directors help guide you for that so you can hand fly it using the 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 nav features this beautiful navigation screens that they have on them their lcd big screens and and hand fly it and enjoy the process of flying it after flying marchetti's and pits and you know uh at that time and the next airline i flew was was the saab 340 as a co-pilot I'll talk about that on a different day. That that was a BizX experience, which was really, really cool. But um, I wanted to talk about the the airline stuff today because the 737 is back in the news with the MAX, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the day. But I have flown the 7.3 MAX. I've flown the 7.3 a bunch, and that's coming up next. But the, the, the Boeing fleet was the first airplanes that I flew, so I really wanted to talk about that tonight with you uh, a little bit more. So that was my first actual flight in a jet with American Airlines with Captain uh, Philip Clayton, and it was flight uh, 1524, and it shows that I was the flying pilot on that one, and then the next one was uh, non-flying, and then I put little FNFN for flying and non-flying pilots, and 
uh, first 3.9 hours. We built up an insane amount of flight time. So if you don't have these logbooks, this was, this was a cool little logbook that the airline sells. It's a flight crew log. It's a little tiny red book. You keep it in your, in your uh, breast pocket. And every leg, you just whip this thing out, flip to the next page, and write down your, your numbers. And it helps you remember what ship number you flew, what, uh, what the stations were that you took off from, what the, what the time was of the day that you, we'd use it in Zulu time, that you took off and what you landed, and then you calculate the hours in 3.9. Now, I use the electronic version now. So I'm looking back in my old stuff in 1999. It was paper. But now I use a really cool new product called Log10 Pro, which tracks all of my hours. So every flight of everything I fly, I add it into my logbook, and then it calculates everything. And if I needed to look back or want to look back, which I did tonight, I'd say, hey, Log10 Pro, tell me how many hours I have in the Boeing 737. Now, my Log10 Pro only goes back to like 2014, and since 2014, I've flown 5,264 hours. So that's kind of a lot of flight time. Some people don't fly 5,000 hours in their life, but I've flown 5,000 hours since 2014. So you can really see how these hours build up. When you're first learning to fly, every hour just seems like it's, it's, you know, it's just an hour, and then there's another hour, and you do it one hour per week, and it takes five hours per month. You know, you're building five hours a month, only flying one hour a week or 1.2 hours a week. So you can kind of see that when you're paying for it, that seems to take forever. When you finally get to the spot where you're getting paid to fly, the hours build up much more quickly. It's much more fun when it's not draining your bank account to go fly. You're doing something you love, and you're getting paid to do it. So I was super excited flying in September of 1999, and we call this initial experience IOE, initial operating experience flying these different types of aircraft, and I flew different tail numbers, but uh, 757s on September 11th, uh, 99, September 12th. And then I switched to a different Czech Airman because I didn't have enough hours. So uh, September 17th, it got a few days off and then came back and flew with a Czech Airman named John Jurgens. And it was flight 200. It looks like it was a 767. So yeah, they wanted me to fly both types of aircraft. First, I flew the 75. And then I flew the 7.6. And then each time I'd get back off of one of these trips, I could call my dad. Hey, dad, look what I flew. I got to fly the 7.6. Have you flown this tail number? I flew ship 360 from JFK to LAX. Oh, yeah, I've flown that airplane. And then he'd make it up like, yeah, that one flies a little, little needs a little more right rotor. Like, yeah, yeah, I did. He made it up. So it, it didn't, <laughs> it's hard to remember these different airplanes. They are all a little different tiny little differences in the in their riggings and the way they fly. But what's cool about flying airliners that are very, very standardized is each aircraft is set up exactly the same. So every radio head is the same. Every display is the same. Every knob's in the same place. I love that because in the general aviation world, every airplane is different. Even our fleet of airplanes in the, in the Marchetti's each airplane that we bought was a different year, a different owner had it, and the basics are in the same spot, the stick's in the same spot, the trim's in the same spot, the radios are sort of in the same spot, and that's kind of where that ends. And then you start to find the gauges are in different spots sometimes, the controls, some of the switches are in different places, and that's really frustrating for a pilot. Pilots really like 
consistency. We want to know where all the switches are. We learn by muscle memory. We learn flows. We memorize uh, checklists. And, and, and not necessarily because we want to. It's because we do it so consistently and so often. It's like your favorite song You know, when you're growing up and you listen to it on the radio. You just start to sing the song because you know all the words. And that is what happens in, in flying. Not to make it into a complacent situation, but familiarity. 90%, 95% of flying is about familiarity. It's about knowing what the airplane's all about, knowing what to expect, knowing what's coming up next on the checklist. When you transmit on the radio, what you're going to say, it's the same as it was last time, and almost, and what what the air traffic controller or ground controller is going to act to tell you. So you you call uh, the the tower and you and you say the same thing and he's going to give you all, or she's going to give you almost the same exact readback every single time. We love that. When it's going to be something different, it, it it increases the workload and the the the. the the thought process of what you have to continuously think. What is he saying? Is he trying, he's trying to tell me something different? Like, whoa, I got to really pay attention now because this is something I wasn't expecting. And you really have to think hard. If it's consistently the same, then it just makes the flow much more smooth and easy. So we love that. But back to my, my logbook, we are uh, in September 17th of 99, John Jurgens flying the 7-6 out to JFK and back. Uh, these are the newer 7.6s. I could see 397 in there. My very first one was one of the early 7.6 200s, which was 301 to 308. Uh, I believe it was 306 that I flew first to JFK. But then my favorite, first trip off of what we call IOE was September 21st, 1999. And as I mentioned before, I'm not sure if you remember, but I had flown my first trip off of IOE in a jet for the first time without the training wheels on, we call it when we have our Czech airmen, with my dad. Uh, Michael E. Blackstone was listed on the NS uh, and Michael J. Blackstone was listed on the NS. And you can hear the flight attendants announce that your captain for today is Michael Blackstone and your co-pilot for today is his son, Michael Blackstone. And we'll be taking you from uh, from LAX to JFK on flight 30. We used to call this dirty 30. This, this is a late, uh, a late night departure. Usually we'd fly out late at night, get to JFK at the crack of dawn and, and come back. Um, I flew this first flight with my dad. It looks like flight 306. It's one of the early 767s, 200 series. And my dad called the chief pilot, I believe, and arranged for his trip to be exchanged for someone else's. Uh, flight 30 isn't a very, very optimal trip for a lot of guys. He would trade one of his good morning trips to get a chance to fly with me on my first trip uh, on the 767 for American Airlines, super cool. So we carpooled together that day, and uh, talking about flying and parked. I probably parked my car down at the and down at Air Combat in the parking lot, and we we carpooled in together and both in uniform. We're like this, this is just cool, like you know the the the, the culmination of many many years of. Of flying together and training together. I started flying with my dad when I was eight years old in his pits. And now here we are flying my first trip 
in a jet with my dad, a 767-200, weighing, you know, 275,000 pounds. And, and uh, we flew together. And of course, I've got the little F next to my name, which is that I, and he wanted me to fly it. So I was the flying pilot on my first trip with my dad in, on September 21st, 99. Coming back uh, September 22nd, 99, he let me fly that one too. So uh, I got a little F next to that one as well. We flew aircraft 308, another one of the older 76200s. We left, it looks like late at night. Maybe at that time it was different. So it's showing a 0554 departure on the 21st and arriving there at 1119 in the morning. And Spent the day there with my dad in, in New York City. Looks like uh, kind of a nice long layover there. Um, we, do, we flew five hours and 24 minutes there. Probably a little IFR. I got four tenths of an hour instrument time coming in. And spent time on, on the ground in, in, in New York with my dad. Went to dinner. Uh, a lot of times he would, he would like to go take in a play or something. I think we might've went to go see Phantom of the Opera and, and go to uh, Carmine's for dinner and just talk about airplanes. Like it's, it, it, it was like a normal day, but here we are flying jets, getting paid to sit in New York in a cool location, um, having a cool refreshing beverage with my dad and, and then go to a show and have a nice dinner there. So the next day coming back, we, um, looks like we left at 2356, looks like a, a midnight departure, and got back into LAX at 547 in the morning. Brutal. So my dad, I'm sure, talked me through the, uh, the entire flight coming back. The all-night ones are tough. I look back at my logbook, and I've got about half of my hours at night. So a lot of guys are thinking that maybe if you go with the the carriers that are passenger carrying carriers like American, United, Delta, Southwest, well, maybe excluding Southwest because I think they do mostly fly most of their flights in the day. But the rest of us, uh, you know, the, the major airlines that are legacy style, we fly all-nighters a lot. So if you're thinking you can escape the all-nighters somehow by going with the the passenger carrying carriers versus United, I'm sorry, uh, UPS or FedEx or Atlas. I have a friend that works at Atlas and UPS. Um, and they fly kind of a lot of, of night trips as well, but they fly a lot during the day because they're on the other side of the planet. So um, they're cranking it right now, by the way. COVID-19 has been really good to the to the cargo carrying operators, and it's been devastating to the passenger carrying carriers, the cargo carriers are busier than ever. They they don't have the capability to haul as much cargo as needs to move in these times. And um, if they're hiring to as we speak, while the rest of the airlines are, are, are laying off that are carrying passengers. So don't rule it out. I mean, I, what can Brown do for you? It can employ you quite well. You'll make a great living and you'll fly day and night. So don't let that... Uh, don't let that discourage you. UPS is a fantastic company, and so is FedEx. And and if either of those companies would have called me at uh, the time when I was looking to get hired, I would have certainly loved to have gone there as well. So that, my friends, is my first trip off of IOE. It's essentially my first jet solo with my dad 
flying the 767 for American Airlines in March 21st and 22nd of 99. Now moving on to the 737 for American Airlines. I switched off of the 75 and 767 fleet. Uh, my dad retired in 2007. Uh, I'll, I'll talk. I'll do a, maybe an expose on, on on the flight with my dad on his retirement trip in 2007. He was uh, 60 years old when he retired, and I stayed on the 7576 until that fleet was essentially decommissioned out of Los Angeles. And the last flights that I flew on it were to Hawaii on the 75 series. All the 76s were parked by that point, and I flew only 75s. I held on to it until I was forced off of it as a co-pilot to the right seat of the 7-3, flew it as a co-pilot for several thousand hours, I think 2,000 maybe, then was reinstated back to the 7-5, 7-6 series, and then then that was gone. So, um, so really, I've been on and off the 7-3 twice. I was pushed off of it when, when, when there were some layoffs. Or it kind of happened like a reshuffle. I was pushed onto the 7-3 for a while, came back to the 7-5. That's how the story went. And then flew the 7-5 until they parked it in, I believe, around, I want to say 2015. I'd have to check to see when we stopped flying. I flew the 7-3 for a while. And when I got checked back out on the 7-3, I flew it for just a few hundred hours. I believe it was about 300 hours in the right seat on my second uh, second uh, pass on the 737, 800 is what American has, the 800 series. And then my time came up to transition to a captain spot. I had been a co-pilot now at American Airlines from pretty much age 25. And I just turned 26 because my birthday was in uh, a month after I got hired. I got hired in March of 99. Birthday was in April became 26, and then stayed in the right seat of the American Jets until I was my first available opportunity to go fly the left seat was the 737, 42 years old, and my spot comes up. I had just been recalled on the 73 about a month or two, barely, in the right seat, and they said, your, your, your time's up. It's your first time going through 737 or captain school. You're going to have to do the, school, the long school again. So back to school for four or five more weeks and switch seats and had an awesome time flying the captain spot, uh, my first captain spot ever, really, um, flying jets for American Airlines and had an awesome training partner, uh, I'll have to look up her name and see if I can find it in my in my logbook. She was fantastic. I'll, I'll post a picture of her in, in, uh, as the as the uh, episode uh, episode tile there, so you can see her. But we had such a great a great experience and going through training. She was a uh, a Czech airman for Eagle. She was super sharp, great pilot, easy to work with. Uh, we studied together. We got this this airplane dialed in and she just made it easy for me. And, and as my, when you're, when you're, when you do your first captain school, you'll know what I'm talking about. When you have a super qualified co-pilot with you that takes it really, really serious and really does a good job studying and preparing and working well with you, that makes a huge difference. And as a co-pilot, I remember when I was a co-pilot, my goal was to come in super prepared, super um, helpful and, and efficient. Remember, this is a two person cockpit 
and you got to work together as a team. And the better you can read the other person and and anticipate what they need and and be their be their right hand person to help help them to, to just make good decisions when they need help flying the airplane. You you, you know, hey, do you want me to take take care of that for you? I can call back in the back. Yeah, that'd be great. Why don't you do this for me? Hey, why don't you fly the airplane for a little bit? I'm going to brief that. Hey, you want me to? So it's just this is this this one hand helping the other. That crew coordination is absolutely critical. So being in in the left seat for the first time and having a great captain who became a co-pilot because she'd flowed through from Eagle to American Airlines. She was super excited to be on the 7-3 and super qualified. She could have easily been qualified to fly the left seat, but her, her time isn't, isn't then. She was too, too junior. So it my time was up and we got to go through this school together and it came out really, really great. My first flight as a captain was December 8th, 2015. And I call this my first flight on IOE. I was with Captain Fred Webster. I, checked, I looked in the logbook today. And um, what a great experience. Just flying the 7-3 has been awesome. After, flying, after having flown the 7-5, series, the 7-3 feels like a baby 7-5 or 7-6. Boeing just does it the same. What is a little different when you fly the 7-3, of course, the smaller cockpit, it doesn't have the heated heated floorboards, which I liked on the long flights on the 7.5, that they could turn the heaters on the floor and kind of warm up the floor at high altitude for long periods of time. That's kind of nice. The floor gets cold, and you know, even though you're turning the, the heat up on the, 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 the cockpit heater, it's coming out of the vents. You don't really feel any heat on the floor, so um, you get chilly. So it's not, I missed that feature. That was a cool feature. I like the, the sound level of the 7.5 and the 7.6 better. The 7.3 is noisy, and uh, all the pilots that fly the 7.3 wear Bose headsets or David Clark's. I use the Bose uh, A20s. They're a little bit older. I like them because they're noise-canceling, and they cover my entire ear, and they sound great. And they, yeah, they take batteries, but I've been using the rechargeables, and I carry a spare ch- set of rechargeables, and I carry that charger with me to the hotel so I can always keep recharging these things and not have a bunch of batteries uh, going dead on me while I fly, but that feature is nice. the The only downside with that is is is, the, is there's no push to talk or the, there's no voice activated. You'd think for a hundred million dollar jet, this thing would key up when you talk and stop when you don't. It doesn't have that, so uh, there's a way around that. I'm probably you'll have to figure that out when you get to to the seven uh, three. But flying it solo in in I call it solo when you when you get your training wheels off after IOE to me is the first time I really got a chance to to fly it as a captain with a regular uh co-pilot a line co-pilot and I flew that mission on December 16th 2015 again still uh still uh still 42 years old flying with Doug Wilmoth and we went to uh to New York on that trip, we ended up going through Dallas and ended up in uh, LaGuardia and went downtown. We went to the 9-11 Museum. So when you do these trips, you'll, you, you build this camaraderie with the, with the co-pilot that you fly with, the captain that you fly with. And it's just two people flying a machine together. And you're, you're buddies. You're, you're, you're 
talking about airplanes, of course, all the way across. And uh, maybe 7-3 nuances, maybe, you know, why is it doing that on the VNAV descent again? You know, we're learning about this thing and we share our, our, our tips and tricks with each other and how we how we, how we manage this aircraft. And, and you're first learning it. I love to fly with a super senior co-pilot who knows a lot about the aircraft, who's been on it a long time, and they can share with you. So the worst thing you can do is, is come into any of these seats and think you got it all and you're dialed in and you just, you know, you're the best there ever was, but actually come into the, to the seat wanting to learn more about it. And the more you fly it, the better you get. And yes, definitely my first uh, flights as a, a captain on this thing were, were interesting and exciting, and they always were. I've flown the aircraft now for the 737-800 series for, I've got 1,850 hours in total time since 2014, since I started keeping my my logbook. I probably have another couple thousand hours as a co-pilot, but I can't seem to to make it match up. I just started that Log 10 Pro. So 1,850 hours in the logbook, with 604 flights in the 737 total, I've flown over 250 aircraft for American Airlines. Um, we have a lot of jets. When you start to count up how many 73s American has, uh, I was looking on uh, Wikipedia for for 737, but I could maybe look up American 737s. See if they got a list there. We got hundreds of them. So, and and we also have twenty, I believe it's twenty six maxes, and Americans in the news today actually. So, uh, it's talking about bringing back the seven thirty seven max. American looks like they're going to be the first ones to launch it, and I'll get to that in just a little bit. I I love the max. I think it's it's a great airplane. I love the seven thirty seven fleet. I love the Boeing uh, aircraft. I love their process. I love the way they the way they, they build aircraft. I think they're stronger and, and built to last. I feel safe in a 737. And I and I feel safe in a, in a Boeing 737 MAX. I think it's the best version they've ever made. And it's going to carry the 737 shape and design way into like 2040. So um, I, I'm excited for it. I, I think we've done all of the, the mods that need to be done to bring it back into, into play. And we'll talk about my experience with it because I did fly it. I've flown it only once, but I love the aircraft. Um, back to, to my 737 experience, 1600 hours as a captain. Um, that's my first 1600 hours in the left seat of, of, of an airliner. And what an awesome experience, you know, flying these airplanes is such a, an honor and a privilege. Every time you go to the airport, uh, I loved to, uh, to, to be a captain and to, and to, introduce myself to the crew, ask them if there's anything I can do to help them, to build some camaraderie with the team, to, um, to really be, be their support uh, leader of the, of the flight. That's what our job is. And to interact with the passengers and, and resolve situations that come up and, and some funny stuff that comes up over, over the years. Usually um, just minor passenger just disturbances and things that, you know, they're irritated. They're, 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 the flights were full, they were delayed. And just being really honest with the passengers and letting them know what their choices were and what, what they, you know, what they need to know the truth. So that was easy for me. I, I love to talk the truth. As you could tell, I'm, I'm, I love chatting with people. I'm, I'm able to 
diffuse a weird situation and and get things resolved and and try not to get people upset while they're while they're trying to travel. We know it's a it's a challenging environment, especially in COVID nineteen, and we appreciate the customers that are flying with us that they're wearing their mask, they're they're limiting their contact, they're 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 washing their hands, they're limiting their their up and down to the restrooms, limiting their eating if they can. Try not to you know communicate too crazy in the back, keeping this thing as as contained as possible. We want to get this this virus behind us. We want the vaccine to come out as soon as possible. We want the this industry to get going again. We really want to travel. We're ready to do this. So um so uh back to the 73 what we're talking about with with the 73800. I love this airplane. It's got so many great features. As I was looking online uh, about the 737 and its history. This thing is the workhorse of the airline industry, and it has been. Since 1967, this airplane has uh, literally carried millions and millions of people. Back in the early days, the airplanes looked like they sold the old 100s for $3.7 million. Uh, which which would in 1968 dollars, which have been about 27 million of today's dollars. The new Boeing 737s that we're flying, the 800s, are a hundred million dollar machine. So every time I get to go to work, I get to fly a hundred million dollar aircraft. And uh, what a, what a what an amazing amazing opportunity that 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 I've been lucky enough to have been able to do, and that American trusts me to do that, and I. Did it for him for for many years uh, as a co-pilot, seventeen years as a co-pilot, and really about four years, well, five years, just maybe just a little less than five years as a captain. Um, loving flying this thing, it it has the range to fly. It says twenty nine hundred and thirty five miles. The seven thirty seven eight hundred at Mach point seven nine, about four hundred fifty knots roughly uh true airspeed and uh the difference between the 737 800 and the, the max that's coming out again and now that in in Dece- december 2020 uh, just a few days ago they just released this thing it says it's going to be it's been approved by the faa and now it's just going to be another few weeks really until the airlines are able to finish their training and they make it seem like, you know, there's some kind of crazy training to go. This is still a Boeing 737. The training is the same as the other versions of it. There's, you know, ours is the 800. Other airlines are running the 700s. Uh, Southwest even has some smaller ones, but we all are running the maxes and there's, there's a lot of them that have been sitting and waiting to come back online. Americans even got orders to replace some of our older jets with maxes. And here's my feel on the Max. The Max is, again, it's it's the best version of the 737. There was a time when Boeing was thinking of re-engineering a whole new airplane, starting from the ground up and making a new jet. And what they did was they retrofitted the the 737-800s with these new engines, these, these Leap uh, motors. And what it did was it, they needed to raise the aircraft. The Boeing 737 is designed to be very efficient and rides low to the ground for a really good reason so that you could reach the, the cargo compartments with 
just the baggage loader and you didn't need a, a special lift. So if you haven't seen like what a 767 has, because the thing rides so high, there's a special truck that pulls up that, that takes huge containerized uh, cargo pods and it has to go up and down on an elevator and then they slide in and they're they're big and they're cumbersome and they, they're kind of a, a lot of equipment to move cargo in and out of these aircraft. Well, the 737 was designed not because it was so so long ago, but because they wanted it to be a plane that could be serviced easily. And what I mean by serviced is, is that it could be fueled and loaded and unloaded quickly and easily with the least amount of equipment possible. And if you had to, you could literally crawl into the back of, of a 7.3 um, and it's just not very high. So putting these giant leap motors on the 737-800 required, and I believe it's like a 69-inch uh, fan blade on this thing. It's a huge engine uh, hanging underneath the wing, and it, and it has 17 inches of ground clearance, which is about the same ground clearance as what it had or has on the 800 series. So how did you get the bigger engine under the wing? Well, they raised the airplane off the ground by putting a longer nose gear, and did some other uh, structural changes and beefed up the main landing gear. They, and they made this airplane handle the bigger engine. That that was a big process. Um, but what it did do was gave the airplane m- much more efficiency. Putting these engines on, it was the, this was a, the piece that they really wanted it to do. And, and it, it saves a lot of fuel. So over the course of a 3,000 nautical mile trip, the max will save 1.8% fuel. And on a, a flight as short as a 500 nautical mile trip, it'll save 1% of fuel over that. And that happens every flight, every single time, 1% savings, 1% savings. Well, that starts to add up really quickly in terms of of effectiveness. This airplane's burning um, 640 pounds an hour less total, which is very significant. We're, we're burning in the 5,100 pounds an hour range, and the max is burning... Uh, 5,100 pounds an hour in the 800 series, the max is burning 4,460. So 640 pounds of savings per hour is a ridiculous amount of, of fuel that is not being burned. It's cutting down on its emissions. It's also quieter. They put those engines with the scalloped edges on the trailing edge of the of the engine nacelles. It makes it significantly quieter. And it carries the same number of people farther distance, a thousand miles farther. So there's many reasons why the Max is a better equipment piece of equipment efficiency-wise. But then, the, then there was the problem with the flight control uh, malfunctions that they had on two jets that, that happened in 20, uh, 2019. Let me, let me scroll down here to, the, to the, the incidents that happened. You know, and... You know, not to say that it that it's insignificant because it isn't. It, it of course it's a significant uh, loss that that happened when they they had the the incidents with the Maxes that that had the the uh, flight control malfunction. Now, what happened was this MCAS system fired off due to an anomaly with its with its with its AOA or its, we talked about angle of attack, the AOA indicator, the airplane has little veins that hang out on the side of the airplane that measure its angle of attack. Well, this airplane managed to have that situation uh, in Lion 
and uh, Ethiopian, where that thing fired off inadvertently. And and what it does when it fires off is it 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 pushes the nose over. The airplane thinks that it's stalling, and and it and it has this auto push feature that it had built into it, which which wasn't super clear to all the operators as to uh, how strong that push was. And we never really practiced how it, how it acts when it fires. Well, if it did fire and it trimmed the nose down, which to disable the, 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 the elevator, the stab trim, the stab trim, we could flick these switches up and stab trim cutout switches, both the cutout, and we can literally turn, turn off the ability of the airplane to, to move the stabilizer with electric power. We, it stops it. So totally fixable and recoverable and it shouldn't have happened in the first place of course but we should have been able to resolve this without losing an airframe i mean i think that that's pretty serious to lose an airframe over something that could be of course shouldn't have happened at all but should be able to be handled and overridden with a simple simple procedure and we shouldn't rely on a procedure to disable the whole thing completely well that would work though if it did happen you could certainly resolve it well, the reason for this thing was is these engines are so big that it changes the flight characteristics of the airplane. And that made it so that Boeing felt it needed this. And in order for the airplane to be type certificated, from what I understand, to make it fly like the other airplanes with these engines that clearly make it fly a little different. Well, I'm used to flying a lot of different types. And I flew the 7.5 and the 7.6. They're definitely different. Different uh, different airframes, same type rating. They called it a dual type rating. I don't see why we couldn't have somehow had a 737NG or uh, the modern 737s. And then maybe the max additional type rating for slight differences is the, with the way the airplane handles and flies in different conditions. So, so it could have been resolved with a slight just letting the pilots know this airplane flies a little different and this is how you're going to fly it. And, and this is how you're going to fly it in these conditions. Fair enough. But to try to trick the airplane, which is a piece of equipment, it's a, it's a, it's a metal and, and design and structure and all this stuff. It, it wants to fly a certain way and they wanted it to fly slightly differently than it would actually fly to make it fly the same as the others. Being a fly-by-wire airplane and being a company that can certainly make an F-18 fly any way they want it to fly, just program it. We can make this airplane fly. They can make the F-18 fly like a Boeing 737 if they just put the software in to make it do it. So what's interesting is is how far they went to make it fly the same. And I get that they can do anything. That this Boeing's an incredible company. But this, this MCAT-CAST thing seemed to be a strange, strange way to handle that. And um, from what I understand, there was also something with trying to make it so that it had a, a heavier feel in the stick at high angles of attack at low speed. One, we don't really fly angles attack at low speed in this airplane. Um, and if we did, uh, how would we handle that? Well, it, it feels a little too light in the stick at, at high angles of attack and low speed. So we're going to make it push over to to feel heavier and to get the nose down and get it picking up speed again. It'll solve two birds with one stone. It'll make it feel heavier and it'll make it not, not approach the stall. I said, okay, well, why don't you just a not approach the stall? And, and if it feels a little lighter in my hand, that should be my indication as a pilot that we're there. So 
I didn't see the see the logic behind it, but that's what how it got going. It's resolved now. So whatever happened with all of that weird software issue, the plane's got awesome engines. It's got the same ground clearance on the motors as it had before. They make it so it flies the same deck angle when it lands. Um, my first flight in the in the Max was uh, first solo flight in the Max was October twenty fifth, two thousand and eighteen. I flew it from Washington National DCA to LA. That was a, an eventful flight for me because um, it was my first time flying the Max, and the co-pilot uh, with me had already flown it before, so he was going to show me a few things about it. Uh, it was my first time flying it, so I'm like, you know, let's let's you know share the leg because we only had one leg. We flew out there and flew it flew it back. It was our only leg in the Max, and uh, leaving. DCA, uh, uh, one of our 757s, managed the tow bar broke and we got stuck behind a 757 that was stranded in our alley with our engines running for like a half an hour while they tried to figure out how to move this disabled aircraft. It was a long day. 6.1 hours uh, on 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 the block time due to pushing off the gate and sitting there waiting patiently for this airplane to get towed out of the way in a very congested spot at, at DCA, flew it to the West Coast. It did pretty great on the fuel fuel savings, I got to say. It did a nice job staying on the fuel score, and it it was more efficient. We burned less fuel crossing the country, which was good, because now we were we were starting to approach a time when the, the fog was rolling in, coming into Los Angeles on that day. In uh, in October, we landed about eight thirty, and the fog was starting to creep in off the shore, and 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 we were getting kind of to where we had getting to our min gas situation. So, a uh, uh, a solid IFR level would have been would have been more sporty if we would have gone gone to to zero zero. If it would have gone to uh, super low visibility, where it would have been required to do a category three approach in the max on my first leg in it um, to do a hand-flown uh, 600 RVR-type landing. It wasn't exactly what I was hoping to do that night. And if we had to go around, we were skosh on gas. So so that's how that flight ended up. My first trip in the MAX flew great. It had nothing to do with the MAX that that I had a slight amount of anxiety. It was the fuel situation due to the the, the late push and the, and the long taxi getting out of DCA with a fog situation developing it at LAX. These are the types of things in 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 flying airliners that that make it make it interesting that make it exciting it's never boring some some folks are always worried to me that telling me that they think flying airliners ah painful it's boring it's like watching the grass grow no it is not there is so much going on so many variables so much interesting factors to it if you love aviation if you love looking at the stars at night and looking for uh for meteorites coming through watching the 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 constellations rise my dad was teaching me about that on on our flights together that was not my only flight with my dad but that was my first one i described you earlier we had flown many other flights together and we flew a lot of all-nighters because that's all i could hold and he would trade good day trips for my crappy all-nighters and we would talk about the stars and and uh constellations and my dad was an aerospace guy and you know an orbital velocity and and uh these kinds of things he was a he was a an, an avid consumer and 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 a man who really had passion for all things aviation and what makes airplanes fly so uh, so those are the differences that's uh that that's those are my first 
experiences at the airlines, first solos. I did those yesterday in, uh, in my last episode with the SF260. Today we did the solos in the 737-800, my solo with my dad in the 767. Uh, prior to that, my first solo as a captain in the 7-3, my first solo in the MAX, uh, which I did in 2018, and it has been an awesome ride. I hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to these first flights at the airlines. I, I encourage you to get involved in aviation. If you have any questions, you can email me at takingflightwithrocket at gmail.com. That's takingflightwithrocket at gmail.com. You've been listening to Taking Flight with Michael Rocket Blackstone. Keep on flying, my friends, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.